You know, as a culture, we do not handle death very well. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. And when we do talk about it, we use a lot of euphemisms to describe it. And one of the most interesting things to me about death is that we often wait until it actually occurs to take time to honor the person who has died. Every time I conduct a funeral, I encounter family members and friends who have not seen the deceased person in years. Now, now don't get me wrong, I think it's great that people will come in order to pay their respects to the person who's died. I just find it interesting that we We don't do this more often while they still are alive. Why not demonstrate our love, our respect, our honor before they die? Well, guess what? That actually happens to Jesus. Someone does that with him. In the story that we're going to explore this morning, Jesus is just days away from death. Within less than a week after the passage that we're going to look at, Jesus is going to be crucified and laid in a tomb. He's told his followers that this day is coming, yet many of them have been unable to accept it. One faithful woman, though, seems to understand. She seems to recognize that the end is near. Rather than wait and honor Jesus after he is dead, she decides to do it beforehand. And she does it in a way that is dramatic and even unusual within her own culture. We find this very distinctive story in the book of John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. John writes and says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And look at what happens next. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So let's set the scene for this event. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he's not the only one doing this. Every year at Passover time, hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes more than a million people, descend on Jerusalem for this very significant religious festival. There's not room for all of these visitors to lodge in town, so Bethany, a nearby village, is a very convenient alternate location. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are siblings who reside there in Bethany, and they're very close friends with Jesus, and so that's where he tends to stay and hang out whenever he's in town. And we learn from John that during this particular visit, a dinner is held in Jesus' honor. Now, John doesn't mention the location. He doesn't tell us the host. But Matthew and Mark, in their biographies of Jesus, they tell us that this dinner is hosted by a man with a very distinctive name. Simon the leper. How's that for a name? Simon the leper. Now that name is intriguing and it's revealing. After all, if Simon actually has less leprosy, he would be forced to live in isolation. He wouldn't have a home in town and he certainly would not be hosting a meal for other people. The logical conclusion then is that Simon used to have leprosy. 
and now is healthy and whole. I find myself wondering, could he in fact have been one of the many lepers that was healed by Jesus? Maybe he was. If so, that certainly would be a reason to host a dinner in Jesus' honor. If you were in that situation, wouldn't you want to honor the person who restored you to wholeness and health and allowed you to enjoy life to the fullest once again? And yet there's a question here because if Simon is cured, then why is he still called Simon the leper? It's because Simon is a very common name in that culture. And people need a way to distinguish this Simon from all the other Simons. Now, in many cultures, like our culture, we distinguish people from one another primarily by last names. But lots of cultures, particularly long ago, did not rely on last names. They didn't widely use last names, so they would take your given name and add a descriptive term to it. You might be known as Simon, the son of Joseph, or Simon, the boat builder. Or if you had contracted leprosy, Simon the leper. And once you were labeled, that label tended to stick even years later when it might no longer be accurate. And what strikes me about this is that Simon's label keeps him anchored to the past. He's free of his leprosy, but he is not fully free from his old identity. I find myself wondering, how often do we respond to people in ways that keep them anchored to a past that no longer is true? For example, I think of Sam, who, whose family always describes him as an alcoholic, even though he's been sober for 10 years. To them, once a drunk, always a drunk. Or I think of Joni, who was a petty thief in her teens, and Spent time in detention, and she's turned her life around. She's now living as a responsible adult, and yet her closest family and friends still refuse to fully trust her. In their minds, once a thief, always a thief. And I wonder if there's people in your life, people in my life, whose issues may be less dramatic, and, and yet we still tend to define them by something from their past. Maybe it's something they've said or done that's hurt us or embarrassed us or made us ashamed of them, and it's now something that they're actually free of, yet we won't let them be free. They've left it behind, but we haven't. How might our relationships be different if we truly believe that people can change, if we truly believe that Jesus can set us free from our past? Simon's label keeps him forever tied to his leprosy. And I wonder if he sometimes gets tired of it. Fortunately, though, it's only a label. He's been healed. He's been accepted back into society, and he has some wonderful friends to associate with. And as we see here from this rather simple description by John, he evidently is now a man of some means. He owns a home. He has the ability to provide a dinner for his guests, a dinner with Jesus as the VIP. And we see here that Simon is generous. Simon is hospitable. 
He's throwing a banquet because he wants to honor Jesus. Now, it appears that Simon lives alone because Martha, she steps in to serve the meal. And as we see elsewhere in the Bible, this fits with Martha's character because she loves to serve. And in this way, she is so very different from her sister Mary. Martha is a doer, and Mary would rather sit. Martha is outspoken, and Mary is quiet. And there's nothing wrong with these God-given differences. Sometimes we have conflicts because people are different than us and we think they should be like us. But we get the most out of life when we discover who God has made us to be and then we use our talents and our abilities and our personality to put our love for God and our love for others into action in our own unique ways. Martha has been wired by God to serve. And so she honors Jesus. And she finds fulfillment in serving the meal. And so here we are with this beautiful banquet. Simon the host. Jesus the center of attention. Martha serving. And in the, in the midst of this very special meal, Mary completely disrupts things. She comes over to Jesus and she lavishly anoints him with this expensive perfume. Now, there are people in our culture who value perfume, but perfume was extremely important in the ancient Middle East. This was an age when people typically didn't bathe every day. Antiperspirant hadn't been invented yet. So perfume was essential if you didn't want to stink. Most women owned inexpensive perfumes that they used on a daily basis. And if they were fortunate enough to own an expensive perfume, they would dole it out drop by precious drop on special occasions. You never would use a luxurious perfume extravagantly. Yet Mary does. And we know this can't be a spontaneous gesture. She had to have planned it in advance because she had to bring the vial or the jar of perfume with her from her home. And then when we put together the accounts from Matthew and Mark, along with this one from John, we get a complete picture of what happens. She comes over to Jesus, and she breaks or uncaps the jar, and the first thing she does is she pours, not dribbles, but pours, this expensive perfume all over Jesus' head. And then she kneels down by his side, and she pours this perfume over his feet. She's anointing him. Anointing is a valued practice in that culture, but it's not normal to anoint someone's entire body. Not while they're alive. This is a dramatic moment. And the drama doesn't stop there. Mary would be dressed very modestly according to the custom of the day, which means her hair would be put up and she would be wearing her hair under a head covering. So while she kneels there by the feet of Jesus, she would reach up and uncover her hair and she would let down her hair. And then John says she uses her long hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. She wipes his feet to ensure that his feet are thoroughly coated by this perfume and probably to wipe up any excess. 
And she uses so much perfume that John says the fragrance fills the house. That would not be the case if she had just dribbled out a few drops. So what we see here is Mary giving Jesus an extravagant gift. It's a gift of love and it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial because it's costly. This pure nard is pricey stuff. And yet, the cost involved is more than monetary. Mary also pays a price with her dignity. Tending to the feet of a guest, that's a task for a menial servant. But Mary does it. She also lets her hair down in public, and that's a major breach of social etiquette. Clearly, she doesn't care about those things. She doesn't care about her self-image. All she cares about is honoring Jesus. So she anoints Jesus from top to bottom and she finishes in the most humble way possible. On her knees, at his feet. That's honor. So in this short, succinct paragraph, John John shows us that Simon and Martha and Mary each honor Jesus in their own way. They're doing something distinctive to honor him as a person. They honor him for what he's done for them. They honor him for what he means to them. Jesus, however, has a bigger agenda because he's trying to help his followers accept the fact of his impending crucifixion. So in a moment, Jesus is going to describe the actions of Mary not as a way to honor his life as a man, but instead as a way to prepare his body for death. Look what happens next. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What a contrast we see here in personalities and in character. Simon and Martha and Mary are focused on Jesus and on honoring Jesus. Judas is focused on money. Now, he has an interesting role among the disciples. He functions sort of like the group treasurer for these men. And in today's culture, they'd form a nonprofit organization and open a bank account and write checks and use a debit card. And that day, they just had a money bag, a money bag that Judas carried everywhere they went. And whenever they got contributions, the money would go in the bag. And whenever they had expenses, Judas would dole out the money and pay the bills. It's a position of great responsibility. It's a position based on honor and honesty and trust because no one ever audits the books. Unfortunately, Judas is dishonest and dishonorable. And his warped character is so evident by his response to Mary's anointing. He has just seen an extravagant, sacrificial act of love and honor and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it because he's more interested in money than in honoring Jesus. 
Yet he knows that he can't state this plainly, so he hides his greed behind a false accusation, a false accusation that makes him sound so spiritual. Oh, we should care for the poor. Serving the poor is godly and it's noble. But Judas doesn't actually care about that. He just wants to sound spiritual so he can hide his selfishness. Do you and I ever do that? Do we ever pretend to be spiritual? Do we hide what's really going on within us with a false veneer? I'm reminded of the story about a woman who was preparing a holiday dinner for her family. There were a huge number of guests coming to this dinner, and she hated it. She did not want to host the meal. She didn't like all the time and effort and expense. And as she prepared, she complained constantly to her family. Yet when the guests started to arrive, she did more than just act pleasant toward them. She said things like, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, I couldn't wait for you to come. What a delight that we're all able to have this meal together. None of it was a reflection of her true feelings. Then they sit down at the table and she turns to her young son and she says, why don't you give thanks for the meal? And her little boy says, mom, I have no idea what to say. Just say what mommy says, dear. You know it's coming, don't you? (laughs) And he bowed and prayed, Lord, why do I have to cook for all these people? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes. The boy saw through his mother's spiritual veneer. He knew she was thinking and feeling one way and acting another. And if we're not careful, we all can fall into that trap. And in a much more serious way, this is the problem with Judas. He's a hypocrite. Jesus makes that very clear by quoting here from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 11, when he talks about the poor always being with us. The point of that passage in Deuteronomy is to remind us that in this imperfect and broken world, there always will be some people who are poor. Yet we're not supposed to just acknowledge that fact and ignore it. Instead, God asks those of us with means to live with open hands and to share what we have with those who are in need. In other words, Judas, if you truly are concerned about the poor, then you do something for the poor with the resources God has given you. Don't criticize Mary and don't accuse her falsely to hide your own selfishness. Instead, you focus on your responsibilities toward God and others. You see, Mary's act of extravagance in this moment to honor Jesus says nothing about her concern for the poor. She's free to do both. And there is a particularly good reason for her to lavishly anoint Jesus at this time. He's going to die very soon. And when people in that ancient culture die, their bodies are anointed with perfume and oil and spices. And so Jesus describes Mary's actions as a preview of coming events. 
John records for us some of what Jesus says in this moment. Matthew and Mark record the rest of what Jesus says in this moment. And if we put both accounts together, it would read something like this with Jesus saying, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Instead, she has anointed my body beforehand. So by honoring Jesus in this unique way, Mary actually has helped Jesus to tell the bigger story, the story of his impending death. Because within the week, he will be buried and his body will be anointed in death. And Jesus wants everyone at this dinner to understand that Mary's anointing is a preview of what lies ahead. He is about to die. Yet he said he would come back from the grave. And just a short time before this event, he raised Lazarus from the dead to prove that resurrection can be real. Jesus wants his followers to connect the dots so they will believe. Many people will believe. Unfortunately, though, Jesus still has enemies, vicious enemies, enemies who view him as a threat, and they have no desire to honor him. And so they intensify their efforts to kill him. Look what happens next. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So there's all these crowds of people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. They've heard that Jesus, the teacher, the miracle worker, he's there in Bethany, and they want to see him. They also want to check out Lazarus. They've heard the story about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and he is tangible evidence that resurrection is possible. These people are all very excited, but none of the established leaders in that culture are excited. The entrenched people in power, people like the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're not pleased by any of this. Jesus' popularity is eroding their social influence. Jesus' teaching, which emphasizes God and the scriptures over tradition and ritual, is eroding their spiritual influence. And most of the high-ranking priests, the chief priests, most of them are Sadducees, and these are people who do not believe in resurrection. They do not believe that a human being can be returned to life, and they do not believe in an afterlife. And yet, here is Lazarus in the flesh, a man who died and was sealed in a tomb for four days, and now he is standing alive and whole again. It is so maddening to these priests to be directly confronted with evidence that what they believe is wrong. And yet human nature is so stubborn. We are so prideful. And when truth is not on your side and you refuse to accept the truth, what do you do? You ignore the evidence. Or you cover up the evidence. Or you get rid of the evidence that proves you wrong. 
And it is heartbreaking to realize that ignoring the truth is a perpetual human failing. It can affect and it can infect every area of human life. We see politicians do this at times. Back in 1973, author David Wise wrote a book called The Politics of Lying. Back in 1973. And in that book, he chronicled the systematic dishonesty of our government under both Republican and Democratic leadership over multiple years. And his book highlights that for many people in power, their highest value is to maintain their position. And when that is threatened, they willingly lie and cover up the truth. And that's why we as followers of Jesus should not blindly trust politicians. They are not our saviors. We see this sometimes in business. If you do a Google search, it will not take you long to uncover the names of dozens and dozens of businessmen and businesswomen who engineered scams or who covered up evidence of deliberate wrongdoing because their highest value was to make a profit. And when their income was threatened, they willingly lied and covered up the truth. And that's why we, as followers of Jesus, should not blindly trust the marketplace. It is not our Savior. Position, power, profit. There are too many people who would rather pursue those things than pursue the truth. As I think about these things, I am so cognizant of the fact that I am a highly flawed human being. And yet, above all things, I want to pursue the truth. I want to know what is true. I want to embrace what is true. And I want to base my life on what is true. And this means that there will be times when I am wrong, blatantly wrong. And as a disciple of Jesus, the right thing to do in that moment is to admit that I was wrong and to change course, not cover up. That's what I want for my life. I hope you want that too. And I hope that for you, the pursuit of truth, God's truth revealed in Jesus, will be always your highest value. And what's so sad, what is so tragic, is it's not the highest value for the enemies of Jesus. They are unwilling to change, even when confronted with the truth. They just feel threatened because the presence of Jesus threatens everything they stand for. And so they're going to do far more than just lie. They're going to do far more than just cover up. They plot to kill Jesus. And now they add to that a plot to kill Lazarus. And with Jesus, they will succeed. They will put him to death. And that's why Jesus provides his followers with this burial preview. His death is coming and they must be prepared. His followers must be ready to deal with the reality of what lies ahead and to wrestle with the implications of everything that he has taught them and everything he has shown them. He wants his followers to be ready to embrace a truth that redefines reality. 
Jesus will die. He will be buried. His body will be anointed, but he will rise again. And that day will change human history if we believe it. You know, Scripture has many layers. And we're all very different kinds of people. And this means that there are different ways that God can help each of us get a grip on this particular story. How might the Holy Spirit be speaking to you today in the situations of your life? Maybe for you it's the example of those who were in conflict with Jesus. And their priority was position and power and profit versus the truth. Could that be an area of life where God might be prompting you to make some changes? Maybe it's the example of Judas, who was a hypocrite. He used this veneer of spirituality to hide his selfish motives. And oh, if you and I are ever tempted to do that, I hope we will listen to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to lead us in a different direction and make better choices. And then there's the wonderful examples of Simon, Martha, and Mary. Each of them, in their own individual way, was striving to honor Jesus. Simon did it by practicing hospitality. Martha did it by serving. Mary did it through a sacrificial offering. How might God's Spirit prompt you? How might God's Spirit prompt me to honor Jesus by the way we live? There's an invitation here for us to ponder this, to pray about this, and then see how God's Spirit leads each of us.